0: Welcome to ConLangery, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley, and with me, where are you again?
1: Uh, I am in New York, yes. Hi, everyone. I'm Kenan Kigunda. Up
0: up in New York, we have Kenan Kigunda. Kenan, yes. Yeah, Kenan. Kenan Kigunda. And uh, you may recognize him from his talk at the LCC and uh that talk is the reason that I brought him on the show uh we're going to talk a little bit about Zevi and a little bit about what his presentation was about with uh standardization of writing so before we get to anything Con Langery is entirely supported by our patrons over at Patreon uh go to patreon.com slash Con Langery and uh as I am so this this will come out at the beginning of May and I have decided that uh, from from now on I'm going to switch the patreon just so that uh, listeners know starting in June I'm going to switch the patreon to prepay now that won't change anything for existing patrons you just still get charged once a month at the same time but one of my perks is that people get early episodes and i would like to make it so that people can pledge immediately and get the the early episode immediately if i advertise it so that's why i'm switching it basically for new pledges you would actually pay your pledge amount immediately but anyway, patreon.com slash conlangary, if you want to throw a buck at us, whatever amount you want to, to send. Hi there, Langers. This is George from the future breaking in. Uh, there were a couple of errors in this episode. You know, we have a conversational style and sometimes we make mistakes. The first thing is, Kenan actually uh, sent me a message asking that I correct one thing that he said. He talked about the uh, Quebecois Language Office, saying it's the Office of the Quebec Language. The actual name is Office Quebecois de la Langue Francaise, which would be translated as the Quebec Board of the French Language. So he wanted to make that clear just because it's very important at least for that organization to assert Quebecois as a dialect of French and not as a separate language. Another thing he pointed out to me actually um, when I was talking about Oxford comma and serial comma I had my terms messed up because serial comma and Oxford comma apparently are actually the same thing. I was trying to find a term for what you would call it when people do not use the Oxford comma. And I assumed that serial comma was it. I don't know where I got that idea, but um, it seemed like there should be a term and that was it what was in my head. Another, just a tiny thing, I said something about most of my guests have been monolingual. I don't think that's the case technically speaking. I expect that my guests probably mostly are bilingual in the sense that they speak at more than one language. I was thinking more in terms of probably a lot of people on the show have grown up speaking only English. So that's the there's many different ways of classifying bilingual but the way that it's used in linguistics Bilingual actually is a cover term for anybody who speaks more than one language. And then you break that down into native bilinguals and sequential bilinguals and uh, adult learners and whatever. So, anyway, those were the corrections, and I will let you get on to the show. Okay. So, back to Kenan and Zevi. Um, Kenan, why don't you? Since this is, uh, you haven't been on the show before. Why not uh, give us a little bit of information about how you got into conlanging, and you know your journey there?
1: Absolutely. So I have been conlanging for quite some time now. It's a little bit scary to think about just how long it's been. But um, I think the story of me getting into conlanging starts with the story of me getting into linguistics, which goes all the way back to about the seventh grade. I had been taking French lessons for a little bit of time before that in elementary school, but I like really, really disliked my French lessons in grade five and grade six, they were the bane of my existence, probably my worst subject. But after switching over to junior high school, my grade seven French teacher, really I have to thank her because she just reintroduced the concepts of how language works and flows in a different way. And that was when I started enjoying learning French. And then from there, I think enjoying more of like, wow, like what is this language thing that we create, all together as a society. And so I started playing around with conlings way back then with things which were really more relaxes of English. I remember looking back on one of my first um, documents I created and it was more of like a table where I had like the same words, even the same contractions. But I think from there, as I started to learn more about the different differences between natural languages I wanted and was able to like say, oh, like there's so many different concepts which can just be completely different to what I'm used to in English or French or anything else. Um, and so that really was my starting point. I think I discovered the language construction kit and the Zonfest bulletin board probably a couple of years after that um, and kind of had just continued building from there and learning from other conlangers and um, a few linguistics courses that I had the opportunity to, to take in university as well.
0: All right. That's great. That's a, that's an interesting story. I think there are, uh, a number of language that sort of got into the hobby through learning another language, learning, uh, natural languages. And that's, a, it's, you know, there are different routes to to the thing, some people come in through tokens. Some people come in through uh, natural languages. Some people come in through other conlanging communities. It's it's interesting to hear different ways that 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 uh, the the entry point came from. Let's talk about Zevi, and I kind of want to. I don't want to necessarily like have you do your presentation over again but I do want to maybe ask about the things that you covered in your presentation and maybe we can go a little bit more in depth on the show here and talk about um some of the world building that was that was built into your steps and how the steps that you identified contributed more into your world building so um Let's start with, uh, I'm going to get into sort of the power struggle later, but I want to ask about the first point that you made, which is really interesting to me. You said, don't get it right the first time, uh, which is interesting to me because a lot of conlangers, including me, would what my first impulse would be, would be to start with, a writing system that is completely regular and then let sound changes and and such do the 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 screwing it up and making it irregular but your main your first point in the, your presentation was no at the beginning there's going to be weird things going on can you expand a little bit on that yeah absolutely i think that
1: it's interesting to me to say that because I think I started looking at uh, complex orthographies in a very similar vein where I looked at, okay, this is what things were like when the learning system was first codified. The phonology was like this, so they would have transcribed it with these letters and then sound changes happen and the things get out of whack. And so I think it is very intuitive and natural to start from that point. But when I started looking into the history of like, why is it that say english orthography or french orthography is as strange as it is Um, how does this work for other writing systems around the world i think that what has started to like increase the light bulb in my brain of like there are types of wonkiness which are introduced even before really complex sound changes have taken place over centuries and i think part of this as i mentioned in the presentation even starts from like breaking out of the alphabet into some of um, the history of writing in general and looking at how writing has come from these symbols which are developed into say abjads and um, depending on the language and how it works it might not even need to capture information which is really important phonetically but that can be recovered differently. And so those systems can be extremely functional in, tri-continental languages, for example. Um, And similarly, if you're looking at like the history of not just, say, morphographic writing systems, but the intersection between, say, like Chinese characters and then how they're borrowed into Japanese and how that borrowing reflects a form of complexity, which is completely orthogonal to, um, again, sound change and development and is more of that, like in cross-cultural interaction, which creates the complexity which we see in the three, essentially, writing systems of Japanese today. I think that was what became really inspiring of like, sound changes is hugely important, and that's a piece that I wanted to continue building on and retaining, but that um, thinking of how the culture in which the writing system was first being codified would also create this extra layer of naturalism and complexity, which was really appealing to me.
0: That's a that's a really good point about Japanese, because if you look globally, the majority of writing traditions got writing from somebody else. Right? Our 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 alphabet is ultimately from ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs through a very long and torturous road. And uh, you know, Japanese got it from Chinese. There's only like four or five places where writing was developed uh pristinely without influence from other people. And of those, the only one that's surviving now is Chinese. So that's an interesting uh, thought about that. But um so you didn't actually mention, The uh, sort of previous history in Zevi, you just sort of started with the beginnings of an alphabetical system. Where did Zevi get its uh, writing? Did they get it from somebody else? Did they develop it on their own?
1: Yeah, I imagine in the Zevi case that it's something which would be um, taken from someone else. And This is something that I haven't fully fleshed out yet. There is, I think, um, it reminds me of one of Marg Rosenbauder's pieces on like different ways of approaching world building in general, sort of like this um, bottom-up approach where you start with like, this is the solar system and um, I'm going to start with my sun and then build my planets and then eventually build up the entire history of it. And versus more of like a targeted, I want to build out this piece and like iterate on top of it. So I tend to often take the second type of approach where I will like build out specific pieces and then iterate on their history. Um, but if I'm looking towards like how does the how do these end up being the symbols of Zevi writing, I think that um, I imagine the Zevi as a nation as like being a. I don't know if superpower is the right word but definitely a cultural center of a larger sphere from which they're borrowing ideas and so i haven't fleshed it out but i definitely intend to in the future sort of explore more of that like what other cultures might they have pulled some of the earlier pieces of these actual symbols from right. i do think one thing which is yeah so i just um, i'm realizing one thing i want to add on top of that is if you look at the symbols there is sort of this idea of like the vowels are not quite un they're not quite diacritics but they do have this sort of diacritical approach to them where it's like they're really based on this base vowel a which is online and then the other vowels are just diacritics modified on top of that and so one thing i think that that suggests about the history is that the development of the consonants and the development of the vowels is actually separate and they could have been pulled from different places or different
0: sources. Okay. Sorry. I was, I was distracted from that. So, so that, that is interesting. So basically what you're saying is like, you haven't sorted out exactly what the prehistory, the, what the ultimate source is yet, but you're having an idea that they got it from someone else, or maybe from multiple different sources. Ah, uh, moving on a little bit. So, yeah. So, and you went over uh, some of the ways that Zevi itself didn't get it right the first time. In that uh, vowels are written in a sort of an unusual way that hides certain distinctions, and also you had the um, postpositions sort of develop the shorthand that 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 almost introduces some logographic elements into it. Um, let's move on then, actually, and talk about the standardization. Because you, what I found interesting about your take on the standardization of Zevi writing is that you framed it in terms of a power struggle between what is it, the, the Bemi dialect and the the Kuvi dialect? Co- yeah, the Kova dialect. Yeah. Yeah. Kova dialect. And with the sort of the cultural center and the political center of the country. Can you talk about like inspirations for doing that and how how like modeling the world building and the power structures in there was uh, an important part of building into the language.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I think that when we look at language standardization, a lot of it um, has happened through like a single political center, sort of extending its dialect and using the education system and using these like systems of governments to remove what historically has been a dialect continuum and um, kind of create a sense of say like nationalism around like this is the way that we talk. And so I think this is true countries where like there still is some level of dialectal continuums, but it's sort of much more normalized than it has been in the past. Whereas, you know, even if we look at what is thought of as standard French today, it's really like the history of a particular dialect Um, of Paris and then the education system and the nation building which kind of made this like the French right and so I think that was my original source of inspiration of like saying okay like there's going to um, as we look at the nation building which happens be a power broker which wants to make their dialect the uniform and the form that is taught across the entire um, the entire I guess I call it like a language sphere, which is their entire sphere of influence that they have politically. But I think the thing which kind of like pulled me towards this power struggle actually was kind of stepping back and looking at like, okay, what type of governmental structures do I want the Zevi, uh, the sphere in which the Zevi language is spoken to have? And this really goes back to just being like, I have really for a long time being interested in city-states and sort of like how those happen, whether it was like the city-states of ancient Greece, whether um, it's sort of like modern city-states or maybe quasi-city-states like Singapore and Hong Kong. And there's like a lot of history and political complexity around, especially these modern examples. But um, I think that like that, started pulling me in the direction of looking like, okay, maybe instead of more of this like unitary federalist or even like um, strong central government looking at like multiple power players within the same linguistic sphere. And I think that, so this concept of like the city states is one thing which sort of started pulling me in this direction. And I think the other thing which started pulling me in this direction is wanting to really have the same type of like dialectal variation that we do see to some extent even in English, not at the say city level the way that I was going to play it in Zebi and the way that I have developed in Zebi, but like at a sort of international scale because of the history of how we've had these two sort of separate superpowers at different points in time. So we've had, you know, the British Empire and then that being replaced by America as a world superpower um, in the 20th century. And that kind of has contributed to different influences in English across the world, especially since has become a global lingua franca. So I would say that those two things were the background of how I started building this out. But I think that I then had this question. So that, that made me certain that I wanted to like have two strong powers competing instead of having just like one state that said this is the standard and having that one Um, say capital or one place, be able to enforce that wherever. Well, actually, I'm taking one step back. I think one more example I would call out because there are quite a few inspirations for this. So another inspiration for this as a French learner, especially as a French learner. So I grew up in Canada. That's where I lived for most of my life in this little town called Edmonton. So in Alberta, central Canada, very near to the Rockies. And that was part of why I started learning French earlier. But I find French learning in Canada to be really interesting because for the most part, I think it's still influenced by this, like a lot of French teaching as a second language is the French of France still, right? It's that like Parisian standard, which has been uh, politically globalized as like the way French is spoken, but it is very, very different than Quebecois French. And so being a Canadian, I think I had this exposure to like a lot of the people that we interacted with, my very first French exchange was with um, a trip to Quebec where I spent two weeks there and then I had my Quebec buddy come to Alberta for two weeks and, you know, being able to watch Quebecois television, a lot of consumption of things like Radio Canada, which to be fair, still doesn't like get into the full depths of um, how Quebec French is spoken because it's a little standardized for news, but like I think a lot of Quebecois media gets a little more into that when you get into, say, like, television shows. And so that was really fascinating, too, in terms of seeing that, like, separation where the separation across the pond, both in the case of English and French, has resulted in, like, very different um, types of speech. And I think that in Quebec, also as part of, like, Quebecois nationalism, there there is, like, the office of the Quebec language and, like, a really a real desire to, like, say we don't quite call it our own standard because there's like these different political elements, but we do like want to say that we're promoting our own words, right? And so you have these words like courriel, which, you know, is invented in Quebec and is promoted by the Office of the Quebecois Language. Um, And it's, things like that really were the things which came to my head where I was like, Ooh, this is, you know, this is great. This is delicious. I'm going to use it in my own constructed languages as well. Um, and I think that from there, I decided I wanted to decide what the pivot was going to be. And so I already knew that like a political capital made sense to be one of the pivots. I think the next pivot of thinking of like a cultural capital actually came probably from um, Brazil as the inspiration for that. So less linguistically, but just in terms of some of the organization of the country where it's like, yes, you have this city, Brasilia, which was created entirely for the purposes of being the administrative capital. And I think there are some other countries which have this too, of like a city which was built just as an administrative capital. Um, But really like culturally, I think of like, Rio de Janeiro as being like the cultural center of where a lot of focus in terms of the festivals and just like the energy um, of Brazil is associated with. And I think Sao Paulo has some of this to a really big extent as well. But I think in terms of like international acclaim, Rio probably is the largest one. And so I think that is the specific example in terms of the organization of Zevi Um, as a nation that I molded it on and said like okay I want to have this like really big cultural capital which has tons of influence and is the thing which is recognized internationally but to have this administrative capital which is where like the seat of political power is actually administering from and so that ended up setting the stage for what we see in the writing system
0: that's that's really interesting um a couple things that i would like to um, pull out from that so you talk about the case of french where you have you know due to colonization and the separation of the two populations you end up with in in france as a standard and um quebecois ha- actually has sort of a quasi-standard but but even in canada you still end up learning So it's showing some of the power structures. Uh, Sort of, I think it would be interesting if you could um, explain more of the political and ideological dynamics. Because when you get into places where you have different written standards in the real world, there's like political divisions and ideological divisions that get involved in that. So like the reason that the United States has a different written standard from the other British settler, settler com- colonies is like Americans develop their own identity uh, and sort of took starting from reforms in Noah Webster's uh, dictionary, sort of developed this standard as a way of asserting ourselves as Americans. And, you know, we are we we are the ones who broke away uh, first. And, you know, we're the only, we're not in the Commonwealth. We're, we don't have, we don't care. We don't have the queen as a head of state as the other settler least do. I don't know if there's any that don't. And uh, the, and I think some of that ideological idea of America is separate from Britain fed into that. And another thing would be like um, in China and Taiwan, the simplified versus traditional characters. So it's like in the People's Republic of China, the Communist Party decided that the simplification would be necessary for their education and literacy efforts, but then Taiwan would not have anything to do with that, obviously, because it's coming from the Communist Party government. And, like, this is not anything to do with whether one is better than the other. They're Both standards are pretty much the same, and it, like... I think the, the consensus is that the simplification didn't really do anything by itself to help literacy. It was a just a big investment in ed- education that did that, right? But mm-hmm. the division was political and ideological of like, you know, PRC government was had decided this was going to be the case and they used their power to promote their simplified system. And then Taiwan's like, no... Uh we don't recognize their legitimacy. We're not gonna like do that simplification thing that they're doing. Uh so uh the this this has got I, I've talked for a bit too long on this. So you in your presentation got a little bit into conflicting ideologies in that uh the in the Bemi dialect their standardization was more based on etymology because of valuing history and philology and stuff, whereas the the Cova dialect, the, this is the capital, this, these are bureaucrats. They I guess they seem to sort of value efficiency, which led to them doing sort of arbitrary homophone disambiguation, but not really caring about the history of it. Like, could you delve a little bit further into that and, you know, inspirations and also, like, what, what are the divisions between these two centers, really?
1: Yeah, exactly. I think um, the thing you summarized from the presentation is exactly on point. So if you look at, like, BEMI um, as a city-state in this cultural sphere versus Kelvi, which ends up being the capital, but, like, they still have this independent histories. And a lot of that history comes from like Remy was associated with like the universities and the theaters and the art centers. It's a place which developed a very strong, like I said, an identity around the, I guess the, what I would call um, the arts and social sciences. Um, Whereas the identity developed in Calvi is much more bureaucratic, but not just bureaucratic. There also is, I think, more of this like manufacturing lens there. And those two end up really contrasting as their like spheres of influence grow. And like, you know, there's a lot of trade which is happening between these, but the things that they have sort of as their strengths, their forts as these cities, part of play into the identities that the people there develop. I think one interesting element of capturing that is like there is a, so one of the sound changes which has happened between the two over time has made it so that uh, the Bemi dialect has, allows for a word final rhotic, the the trill to occur after nasalized vowels. Um, And the Covey dialect does not allow this at all. And the reason why I bring this up is because it actually ends up sort of playing not only in terms of like what their different ideological differences are, but their stereotypes of each other, because this sound um, appears in this word that the Bami dialect has, which is tang. And in the, historically, right, the idea behind this word is that it's what you use to describe something as um, simple. Right. And so historically it's like simple, maybe um, a of a- fashion, right if someone is wearing something that's very just like functional which is very basic which isn't matching with the mode of the time and so you know at some point this might have actually been like an accurate word that someone who's participating in this much more like artistic center where like keeping up with the fashions is much more important that's something which you're like you grow up in and maybe more or like the po- this is always going to vary by personality and population but maybe like there's just more of the population which is focused on this in Demi than there is in kovi um and so at some point in the history this might have actually been something that like a Bemi speaker might have said to a Kavi speaker is like oh my goodness right you're like your dress is so calm but you know it's so basic but in over time, it's really become much more of this like stereotype, right? And so like this is a word which, because of the stereotype, is not even used in the modern language of the Bami dialect anymore. It's actually just seen as like this thing which has been put upon us. They think that we're like these very snobby people who go around calling everyone, you know, these uh, simple people because they aren't keeping up with like they don't understand the history and why the you know we we, we wear what we do and why like this. Uh, book is so much greater than like this other this other work like where the works of our city have come from and where our history have come from and just like those things still i think exist a lot in terms of like the fact that understanding the study of both art history linguistic history is really important to the like social science universities which are like really the center of this city right they're very much it's very much sort of like a university town type driven thing but like the extent to which the stereotype is perpetuated is of course aggrandized greater than reality and so nowadays it's sort of something which is like almost more likely to be said and exaggerated right by a speaker in the color dialect who is sort of mocking the way they view that they might be perceived by these Bami speakers, almost as if like, you know, if I were to uh, be here and trying to like, I-, I couldn't even do this all, like imitate the perceived prestige, I think that sometimes is attached still to uh, British speech, right, in the English and be like, you know, if I'm going to try to act like this um, high class, wealthy Lord or lady and be like, you know, um, could you bring me my tea all right and things like that where does it actually match the reality very much no but is there this perception which might still appear in like conversations and media right of things being glossy and i i think that that kind of showcases and does appear in terms of like this view of the COVID um center viewing itself as like we get things done, you know, we're the place which is like manufacturing things, making the important decisions, like we're efficient, we're on top of things, we just want a writing system which is going to help us do this, right? Like writing is functionally a tool for us. And this idea of like the pushback from Bemi was really around like writing developed over, you know, many, many great writers. We want to be able to understand their works. It developed over by recording Recording the tales of so many oral storytellers, we have this like rich cultural history, and those things—the clash between those things—really is what had to be resolved to create what was eventually standardized as standards of writing. Just because of like the greater, you know, as these cities grew larger, as their populations grew larger, the amount of trade between them grew, the amount of people going from one to the other, you know, you might have. Grown up as a kid or a child in Kavi, but you might still be the person going to the university in Vemi and then coming back to where you're working. And so, like, that sort of exchange between people ends up creating the like overlap where it's like, okay, these things become accepted as being used between our entire sphere. But yeah, that is the maybe ideological pinnings beneath it.
0: Uh, one thing that you talked you just sort of casually mentioned in the presentation uh Mm. was something that occurs in outlying dialects that it isn't included in the standard because like the people who had power to create a standard didn't care which yeah you know that's also relevant to the real world you know standardization of american english they didn't ask the poor they didn't ask the slaves they didn't ask a lot of other people that could be involved and then in and uh and you know in China they they asked mandarin speakers they didn't ask speakers of other uh chinese languages so like could you expand a little bit about who are the people who in your world are excluded to the extent that you've fleshed that out who are excluded from the standard and like just not participants in this a power struggle because maybe they live outside of these two main cities or just don't have the power to assert themselves.
1: Yeah, I do think that we see this play out time and time again in language where it's like language is never divorced from the systems of oppression that exist at a larger level in the cultures, which they're being spoken in. And so when it comes to Zebi and Bemi and Kavya in particular, I don't know yet exactly what this interplay is, other than to know that it's like if we think of these city states which are participating in this like cultural sphere of trade and language there are going to be other smaller cities and there's going to be places with smaller populations. And it's, I think of it a lot as being like this dialect continuum where like, as we go across people outside of even these two main ones are still gonna be speaking slightly differently. But there's this level where if you're not in at the like power play level of one of these two big giants which are going hand to hand, then you end up being excluded. I think that part of what you've alluded to is something that I actually am, this is something I also do consider a little bit in constructive languages and the naturalism of it, right? Which is like, what things about the systems of oppressions that we have in our reality, even within say like these cities, right? Like, Is there, is there a class hierarchy which is being exposed? Is there a history of things like slavery? What things of those? would I want to replicate versus what things are also a little bit, I guess maybe like the refreshingness of being able to create a world, which is maybe a little escapist to some extent, right? So it's like, there's some things which I have definitely replicated here already in terms of um, the different interplay between the cities based on say like their populations. I haven't really thought too much of replicating elements which have more to do with like saying, we're creating these hierarchies of like, us as a people of these characteristics, right? Are better than or greater than. Although I think that it's like hard because there's a strong realism which comes from that. And so it's something that I go back and forth on in terms of like, whether I'll delve more into like the specific biases or how rather I'll delve more into the specific biases um, of the speakers in this sphere in the future. Yeah.
0: yeah. I mean, it is always a very tricky topic, and we have talked about it on the show before. And there's sort of an idea that I have that your world does not necessarily need to replicate any specific oppressive system or specific form of bigotry that exists in the real world because just about any of them... Could have not developed uh, if if I think about it like the the one that would be easiest to to say well this could have not happened uh, in an alternate history would be uh, racism because the category of race could have just never been formulated uh, there would still be ethnic divisions but like just about anything you could excise from your world. At the same time, if you're writing about power struggles between two powerful entities, well, that does sort of imply that there are people who don't have power. So I, I, I find it interesting that you're sort of wrestling with that balance of uh, how much do I want to play into the power struggle and how much do I want to include sort of the oppression that is implied by that or the class systems or whatever whatever kinds of inequalities result from that and how much do I want to sort of pull back from that and keep it in a sort of escapist fantasy mode?
1: Yeah, I think exactly. There's like this visioning to it which comes like, ultimately sort of retaining the joy I think of this um constructed world creation constructed language creation right in terms of like having it be a process for not creating ideal worlds, certainly because there's many things which are unideal but maybe exploring those things which are like even say for myself "Mm, what's the right way of putting this I almost want to put it as like there's a certain, say, emotional labor, which would come from like right. having my artistic hobby of constructive languaging also be about recreation or deconstruction of colonization or slavery in a way which is really parallel to the way white supremacy or race has involved in our world. And I think that like while those things are really important to me and are super um, like they're topics, which I think about a lot, they're not always topics, which I want to like intersect with, um, Zepi as a language.
0: Right. I hope you don't mind me saying this. So like people who have seen the presentation know this, but just to give context on where your emotional, like feelings about this come from, uh, you are black, right?
1: That is correct. Yes. Yeah.
0: And you can't I can't see it, yeah, it on is, the podcast, but...
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I should say more on that because just um, actually... I think this also does tie into conlanging as a hobby for me is, like, my um, story is I was born in Kenya and then I moved to Canada at a very young age and I now live in the United States. And I, this actually is something which is very linguistically interesting for me as well because, like, the story of like language colonization, which is something which like has to do with even like in Zevi, these like city states and their competing warfare has played out in a very real sense in my own life. I am one of the individuals who I originally spoke in the very first few years of my life. The, um, was a fluent speaker as, or rather I shouldn't say fluent perhaps, but like as fluent as you would expect a four-year-old to be in Swahili after moving to Canada and then beginning to speak only in English, I actually lost a lot of that ability. So it's like the extent that I speak Swahili today is like in an L2 sense of having relearned it as an adult as opposed to as a native speaker. And a lot of that has to do with like, even with I talk about say like English or French, there's this like pattern of the colonization of european languages over african languages which is like very personal and very real for me and so i think that that is an element where it's like i think it is part of why i am interested in constructing languages in general and why it actually ends up being reflected even in the constructed languages i create these idea of like language dynamics and the power politics of it and so that is important to recognize and call out
0: yeah Yeah, I I didn't mean to put you on the spot, but it is kind of true that, you know, a lot of people that I've had on the show and a lot of people in the conlang community are white, monolingual English speakers. Um, I've I've had people who are bilingual, of course, um, and uh, who have different language backgrounds, but um, it is interesting how your perspective and your background can feed into maybe a different approach to conlanging and the world building around it uh, than maybe I would come up with on my own.
1: Yeah. And I think it's one of those things where like, I was really excited to see the language creation conference this year because we have so many different voices coming out where like, um, I think it's, it's nice to have that reminder to like even have that visual reminder of the different stories and the different people who are participating in this hobby. Because I think like a lot of the, as you mentioned, like a lot of people's perception of the prototypical examples might be something like Tolkien, which is a very... I guess I would say like Eurocentric um, lens to (laughs) language create, not even language, just like fantasy world building in general, right? And so getting away from that as being the only example is really, really important.
0: Yes, definitely. Especially considering some of the ways in which like Lord of the Rings does treat, you know, if if you look at the, Lord of the Rings as it's a mytholo- mythology set in a mythical Europe and then you see how people from outside of that sphere are treated in the fiction. Yeah, yeah it's it's it, I I agree with you. It's definitely important to bring in voices other than Tolkien as examples of good world building and good conlanging. Yeah, I think I think we, we got a bit heavy there and maybe we can pull back a little bit. Um so um so your presentation you sort of provided it as three steps is you don't get it right the first time, you standardize it and then you let sound changes develop and uh and screw things up further, basically, while people refuse to let go of the old spellings to some extent. Yeah. Here's a question. In your opinion, like where would you consider um things like spelling reforms and such, where like people maybe maybe this would be also a power play as well, is in like mm-hmm. as these things drift further apart are there when when would you consider like saying okay i'm going to have a group come in and try to reform things or or i would i might have certain certain traditions start to like fix some of the things that have gone out of whack
1: yeah i think that (laughs) spelling reform is always super fun because um to be quite honest, it like marvels me that um, maybe this is like a property of existing in you know the English landscape, where spelling reform inside English has always seemed to be this huge intractable intractable problem. But um, it marvels me, and I'm very impressed whenever people are able to like reach a consensus in terms of like, yeah, let's actually collectively change all of these things about the way that we write. I think that. And and I think this then like comes in terms of seeing like, why has this been much more intractable in English say than in other languages, which have had certain successful spelling reforms. A lot of it, I think comes to then the way this interplay is set up of like having multiple power centers I think makes this more difficult. I think you're right that for any system, there's gonna be people coming with a proposal saying, why not simplify this? Why not make it this way? It, it um, reminds me of the joke. I think there's a uh, comic by Randall Monroe in XKCD talking about this in terms of like, anytime there's a large number of standards, someone will be like, you know, there's a real problem right now. We have all of these competing standards. So I am going to solve this problem by introducing a new and better one. And it's like the next panel is like, and there are now 13 competing standards. So. I think that this really is a problem, at least in the Zevi sphere of like, the consensus building is just too difficult and thus inertia ends up winning out, right? So it's not like there aren't people who are making these proposals of saying like, but why don't we, why don't we just like simplify? And why don't we just like remove, you know, we literally are spelling these like three, these sounds, three different or rather we have three different spellings of this thing which is now just one sound like can we just not one of the things that i was researching a little bit tied to that is in the context of say france right in the Académie francaise how like they've made a series of like small spelling reforms and adjustments over the centuries but um some have taken up and some haven't right like some have eventually been adopted some people have been like I mean, we could, but also like, eh, you know, like, I think there's this this property, I think of sometimes like perpetuating a complex system because you had to go through and learn it, right? So like, by the time you're the power holder, you have spent enough of your hours in your life, right? You're the person deciding what the newspapers publishing standard is, or the book, or, you know, the department of the government that you work for, or like a private company. And you're like, I mean, I could and do all of those years I used to memorize exactly which letters should go in which words. But like, now that I'm here, I mean, I've already done the work. So is it really that valuable to make it easier for future generations? Ah, right. I And I, I think that, of course, also plays, again, even into the conversation we were just having of like, this is sometimes part of how like, systems of inequality reinforce themselves. But I think even in terms of like, just things which are just like, bad spelling systems or bad, maybe not the right word, like complex spelling systems and opposition to reform or um, inertia against reform. This is a very similar word too. So I think that like in the case of Zevi, this is one where um, I imagine it's something I could document in the future of proposals people have had to like simplify certain things. But I view standard Zevi as being very, very... Um, entrenched the standards of writing, I should say rather. So, the dialects are not as entrenched, but the standard writing system isn't.
0: Yeah, that's. Uh, they interesting. Oh, yeah. oh sorry.
1: <laughs> no, 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 go ahead.
0: Oh, and so uh, that's that's an interesting point that it's sort of these two cities now sort of have a stalemate and have sort of agreed to a common standard, and any attempt to reform it is probably not going to go anywhere because of that political situation. Thinking about that, like, and, and I think this is something that conlingers can think about because really when you think about language change, language reform, language standardization, it's all political. It's never really anything that's inherently better than anything else, right? Um, That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I you're you're talking about like, oh, some some bureaucrat somewhere might decide to try to do their own reform. I I was thinking about, okay well, my own job is uh, like I'm I'm a transcriptionist working at Google. Um, Technically, I work for another company and they send me to Google. And, like, part of my job is proofreading reports. And uh, uh, I think it's okay to say this, but um, there is no internal style guide at Google. (laughs) So I'm basically on my own in terms of, like, what things do I want to enforce on people in terms of, like, commas and stuff. I can't really change spellings because there is a spell checker built into Google Docs. I'm not going to, like, contradict that unless it's a new word that it doesn't know yet. Uh, Mm -hmm. But, yeah, it's like I'm, I'm kind of in a weird position of, like, I don't really have any power in this company, but within my team, I'm sort of deciding whether the way that they are writing in some minor sort of insignificant ways is okay. (laughs) So, yeah, yeah, it's like sometimes like little people have little bits of things that they can do in terms of, you know, maybe maybe favoring one uh, punctuation convention over another, but it's not going to, it's usually not going to go anywhere like in a on a bigger in a bigger sphere.
1: I do think that, yeah, that is a great point to call out of like there is going to be, even for any standardized systems, like different levels of, I guess, um like levels of uniformity in terms of acceptance. And there's things in those categories where people have like personal or team level or like group level decision-making power to say like which of these different options, which are both acceptable depending on who you ask, who am I going to take? And um, yeah, definitely something important to remember for con welding as well and conlanging too. I I find that happens a lot in different spaces where we're writing or talking or speaking, where it's like one, one I guess maybe like idiosyncrasy that I have um, on this is I tend to be very like strong about um, removing hyphens from most I guess prefixes which I consider like productive. So if I say like, you know, re-transform something, and it's like, uh, you can stick the re prefix on any English verb. It's fine. People will figure out what is happening. But I, I notice like when I'm writing or if people are like, you know, transcribing something that I'm writing, a lot of people will have this line in terms of like how how compositional versus like how um, in, I'm forgetting what the word for this but like how integrated has it been so like people might not use the the apostrophe or sorry the hyphen if it's like reapply but they might use it for like retransform um so lots of sort of little decision making power and things like that
0: yeah yeah um and and that's that's the thing even when the language has a standard there's likely to be variation um and sometimes it Pops up unexpectedly. Like, um, I used to be kind of baffled by like people talking about Oxford comma online. And like, doesn't everybody, like, I didn't even know it was Oxford comma until people started arguing, arguing against <laughs> doing serial comma, which I'm like, does anyone do that? And like at my job, there are people, people do that, do that. And I'm I'm okay with it uh I, and also uh i found out uh when my wife started and i started a youtube series together that she does that and that's because <laughs> yeah she's she's a chinese speaker and i think the standard is serial comma in chinese so there's there's a, a reason behind that i don't know why uh i keep seeing on my team multiple people doing serial comma but it's like this is like, I was taught one way in school, and then I hear, see intermittent arguments saying the way that I already learned is the only way, and then this other way is bad. And I'm like, but I never seen the bad way. And now I've seen the bad way used consistently. It's like <laughs> the quote unquote a- bad way. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's fascinating. Wow. Yeah. I'm. <laughs> um- <laughs> The Oxford comma, I guess, the yeah, serial comma. I actually, this conversation is the first time I have heard the um, phrasing serial comma, which makes more sense. I think it's probably more um, generalized. I've always heard it being called the Oxford comma. And I was, I was like, okay, sure. I guess no, we uh, love knowing. things after comma Oxford. comma is the
0: other way. So um, oh, okay, I, see. I don't know if I'm using the right term, but Oxford comma is uh, when you have a list that has more than three things and then and and you have an and a conjunction just before the last one you put a comma yeah. before that conjunction right so it's right. like mm-hmm. bob comma and john no bob comma john comma and ann versus mm-hmm. bob comma john and ann with no comma before the and would be the serial comma variant and like i had never seen the second one before yeah, I, and then i started seeing people use it consistently i'm like oh huh so it actually is a thing that people are complaining about but anyways I I got that, yeah yeah that that that's a weird um that's a weird thing do you have pre- punctuation in zevi just curious out of curiosity
1: there is um uh, you have so this ties. Yeah, I, I showed marks. a little preview of the question mark. And there is um this ties back to the observation I think you had made about like the um post positions, right? So Zevi Zevi has this way of like having uniformly bracketed question marks and it also use or sorry, uniformly bracketed post uh, punctuation and it also does this thing for a lot of his post positions, which works really well just given the like structure of the language. So it's um generally requires postpositions or case markers of some sort in between words. It has very like direct noun noun modification or things like that. And so I have that same principle bubble up to the punctuation as well. So like there are things like the question marks, exclamation marks, and they always appear in this like bracketed form where they're on both sides of the phrase, kind of similar to as in Spanish. And so I think that it was actually really satisfying to have those pieces like click together.
0: Hmm. Yeah. All right. So, um, I think it's about time to wrap things up. It's been really great talking to you, Kenan, And, uh, I would, I hope to see more about your work, uh, with Zevi and maybe with other languages. And, uh, I, I'm, Thanks for coming on and talking to us. Um, Do you have any final thoughts before we go?
1: Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. I definitely am looking forward to continuing to capture more and more of my notes on Zevi and some of the other conlangs I dabble with online. And um, yeah, sharing it all on my website.
0: Okay. All right. So uh, I, I will have links to his presentation um, and to the, uh, some, some of the public information on Zevi and, uh, all right. Thank you. Thank you, Kenan. And, uh, uh it was a pleasure to have you on and to our audience. Thank you for listening and happy conlanging. Thank you for listening to Langery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for ConLangery. Langery is entirely supported by our patrons at Patreon. To become a patron, go to patreon.com slash conlangery and pledge your monthly amount. As little as a dollar will help us out. A special thanks to Ezekiel Fordsmender, Margaret Ransdell-Green, and all of those who have chosen to support us. ConLangery is under a Creative Commons Attribution non-commercial share-alike license. You may use ConLangery episodes for any non-commercial work as long as credit is provided to us and you release your work under the same license. ConLangery's website was created by Bianca Richards. Our theme music is by Null Device. And transcriptions of our episodes have been provided by Sarah Doparella. Passato.